Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Great job, guys. Way to go. So welcome, everybody. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, great to have you with us today. And uh, I got, that was a little round of applause for me as well. Wow. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, we're, we're entering t- into a new season um, called Advent. And it's a season that's a little bit different in the church calendar. We, we, we move into this beginning of the new church year, and, and, and we actually move into a season which is probably a little more contemplative, perhaps a little more somber. One of the things I like to say is that this church calendar, this thing that goes round and round and begins with this moment of Advent and works its way through Christmas tide and then on to Lent and then on to Pentecost, it actually protects you as a community from me and my upbeat extrovertness that I tend to carry most of the year around. The, the, the truth is that that's how I am for the most part, and, and my counselor might say there's some deep-rooted trauma like D below that I'm using it to cover uh, over, but, but the truth is that that's how I feel, and yet life is at times difficult, full of grief and hard, and will be at some point for me, and, and Advent is a season where we, we are a little bit more contemplative and we recognize some of the, the tension that's at play there. To prepare us for this season, a few weeks ago, I began taking some photographs. I, I love to go on a walk every Sunday morning before I do any of the sermon. I, I like to kind of take it in for myself and contemplate it for myself. So every morning I go off on the same route and, and I began to take pictures of just how the season was beginning to change because my rhythm didn't change. I was still walking, I was still doing that every week, but, but the season you can see, it is changing as we go from like the leaves that are yellow to the leaves that are red and things begin to fall off and things begin to get darker as well in the morning and till you finally get to these ones right before daylight savings hour. And this is where I met the mountain lion that I told you all about that may have been a bobcat or a house cat. I'm not sure, <laughs> one of those. But, it, it, and then we, we come back to, to sunlight as the daylight savings disappears. And, but you get to watch the seasons change and what in the summer, it can be a walk followed by a swim in an outdoor pool suddenly becomes a, a, a walk in all the wrappings that I have just trying to stay warm. And as I go out to explore, we experience what it is for seasons to change in everyday life. And we experience what it is for seasons to change for the church as well. And as we head into this new season, we begin, Fleming Rutledge says, in the dark. We, we begin in the dark. It's this moment of waiting for the light, waiting for Christmas, but it hasn't arrived yet. It's not here yet. And so we wait and we ponder and we prepare. And, and what I find happens is when we do that preparation work well, the arrival is all the more rich. There's traditions in different parts of the world where you take carols like perhaps, oh, come let us adore him. And there's one particular verse that you're not allowed to sing until Christmas morning and you wait and you wait and you wait. And then when you get to sing it, it's all the more richer. Advent begins in the dark and works its way to light. And as I just alluded to, Advent is here, let the waiting begin. 
is another way of perhaps saying that. It's that moment of stepping into something, but knowing you're stepping in first to wait. For those of you that love theme parks, perhaps, you, perhaps you've had that experience. You drive however many miles, and you walk into the park, and then you realize you're going to spend most of the time just standing in line, waiting for the ride to come. And, and Advent is that. It's this, this pondering period. And in the midst of that, what we get to remember is this. In the waiting, God is working In the waiting, God is working. In the waiting, God is working. Traditionally, Advent begins with the story, not of Jesus, but first of John the Baptist. And and his father, Zechariah, sings this song on the birth of his child. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, of which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. That picture is of the sun gently rising and what it is to see it hit the mountains and slowly work its way down, illuminating everything with its warmth. Another translation phrases it like this, the dawn from on high shall break upon us. But I'm intrigued by the words break upon us because dawn isn't the only thing that breaks, right? When I think about something breaking, I think about waves, those big rolling waves that come in from the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. And I wonder if for the first people, Advent didn't come more like the breaking of a wave than like the breaking of dawn. Because the first Advent, the first Christmas is nothing short of of complicated, right? It's not easy. We maybe make it easy. Maybe verses like this give us an easy picture of Christmas. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. My wife and I are about to have our fourth child, and it's coming fairly soon. So if Laura makes any strange movements or anything, like just disappears, then maybe it's time, I don't know. And at some point, I'll just wander up on stage with this newborn child. And, and then we've also experienced, as many of you have, what it is to sit with that child and, and experience that, that moment. And that is perhaps joyful, but this one seems to mix joy and deep complication. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. We picture it something like this. We picture just the, 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 all the characters coming together. We picture the, the wise men. We picture the shepherds. We picture every type of animal, apparently. We've even got all of the baby animals to add the cues. A small horse was apparently present at the birth of Jesus. If you're a Parks and Rec fan, little Sebastian right there at the, the birth of Jesus. It's this joyful experience and and the scene is so birthed in our minds that all sorts of advent or first, all sorts of nativities have begun to appear you get the the dog nativity and the bath duck nativity not sure what's going on there the veggie tales nativity and the meat nativity apparently you can turn uh, nativity and know. Um, and then the, the fast food, you got the wise chips or whatever, the shepherd's pie, the baby bell, the angel hair, uh, lasagna and whatever. Like, 
the reason these work is because the scene is known so well to us. We're familiar with it. We expect it. We have this comfortable picture of everyone gathered together for this nativity scene as they, they, they all emerge at the same time. The writer, Ian McEwan, starts his novel, Enduring Love, with this scene where four people run from different directions, from each point of the compass towards a hot air balloon that has escaped from its pilot, and each of them grabs a rope and attempts to pull it down to the ground, and yet it still takes off with all of them holding on, and, and tragedy eventually unfolds, but we're left with this scene where four stories converge, and the rest of the novel spends its time looking at what happens to those people afterwards, and what, what brought them there in the first place. And I often picture nativity as being like that. Yes, there is this scene, and did they ever all end up in the same stable at the same time? Well, probably not. But something brings these different characters into this Jesus story. They, they collide together. The nativity scene, it represents a collision of multiple stories, stories that we'll see in drama. And today we get to think about the way Mary's story is pulled into that in this particular and definitely complicated way. Yes, there's this birth scene and there's this arrival of a firstborn son, an incredible blessing for the time. Like that was what you wanted, that's what you were hoping for. But already the story is complicated just in getting to Bethlehem. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, we're told, that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee in Judah to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the line of David. At many months pregnant, Mary is asked to take a journey on a donkey of multiple days to arrive in a different town. And I said to Laura, do you want to go out for a journey like this? And she's like, no, not at this point, no. Um, I even asked her if she wanted to co-preach this with me, and I was like, eh, I didn't feel like it was what you wanted, right? At this point, nothing sounds good, and a journey to Bethlehem, ah, this is Mary's story. It's already complex at this point. But we go back a little bit further, and the complexity increases. This is the introduction to Mary. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the mother of John the Baptist, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, a town of about, at this point, 400 people. It's quintessential small-town feel where everybody knows what's going on in everybody else's life. Everybody is interconnected, and this is where Mary lives. A virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Mary just appears in the story. There's no background, no information other than that she's pledged to be married and has not been married yet. Most of the biblical writers love to give lineage. It's always important that you know all of the details about where they are from, which family they're from, all of those different elements. And, and with Mary, there's nothing. It's like the writer wants us to know that, at least in background, there's nothing special about Mary. Maybe there is character-wise, maybe there's some stuff that will emerge, but on the surface, there's no reason she's pulled into the story. She's simply pulled in by grace. She, she ends up in this story for nothing that she has done particularly. The angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly 
favored. The Lord is with you. It's the sort of announcement that you want to hear from the angel. It's one of the good ones. And yet, the angel's words get more complicated. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Mary at this point is probably, by best guesses, somewhere around 14, 15, 16 years old, living in a small town, and this is the news that she receives. This is what it is to be greatly favored by God. Can you feel the complication of her story, the difficulty that it might be to explain this. And while the angel's words are encouraging for the future of the Jewish nation, for the future of humanity, for Mary, there's a deep complexity to them. The angel tells her that they're to call the child Jesus, which literally means Yahweh saves, and even unpacks that. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. These are good stories, good promises, good dreams that come with a ton of personal complexity for Mary. Essentially, the angel says to us something like this, you are invited to take part in God's story, Mary, and yet the story will be complicated. And Mary asks the obvious question, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin, the writer Urs van Belthazar says this, you, you might retranslate that first part, how am I going to do this? Most of the time within the biblical writers, uh, the, there is this invitation to be part of God's story and it requires you to do something. And yet what's, what's Mary supposed to do? She can't do anything, she, she has to wait patiently for the story to unfold. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. For no word from God will ever fail. What is Mary supposed to respond to this? She responds in this way. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Mary surrenders to the angel's proclamation in faith. Luke, this writer, he, he seems to want to contrast the two stories that are emerging because Mary's response is the ideal response. She hears this, uh, this invitation to God's story and she responds, well, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, has not responded well. He's responded with doubt. He's responded with uh, uncertainty. And, and this character that's a priest, that's important, that's respected, who's supposed to play a valuable part in the story, uh, well, he's uncertain. He's not really sure that this is what's supposed to happen. Whereas Mary, this this nobody character, this character that's emerged, well, her response is the right one. Mary surrenders to the angel's proclamation in faith. I am the Lord's servant. She takes the invitation to the, the story, and then she responds, may your word to me be fulfilled. 
may your word to me be fulfilled. That's the first step. That's the yes to the story. But I wonder where it goes after that. Because there's a lot to wait for, right? There's a yes to everything that the angel offers, but, but for those of you, I, I'm sure, I, I would guess, and I believe, I hope my wife would say yes, I didn't check with her beforehand, but there's, there's the yes, I'm, I believe I'm pregnant, but then there's the waiting, right? There's the waiting for the first kick of the child. There's the waiting for the birth. Then there's the having of the baby and the child themselves, and, and, and you suddenly realize there's a long, or there's a lot to happen in between the promise of this child will be the savior of the world and it actually happening. There's nine months of pregnancy and then there's 30 years of living. And it's one thing to say yes to the story, but what does it take to wait in the middle of that story, to wait for it to come true? And maybe you've been there personally, maybe there's things that you feel you've been promised maybe things that you've been promised by God and you're like, I haven't seen them yet and I said yes to them, but, but I'm waiting. Maybe there's things as a church community we've hoped to see and, and we've said yes to them, but we're waiting and, and certainly this grand big Jesus story that has death and resurrection, well, well, now we're waiting again and we're waiting and we're waiting and the whole point of Advent is to recognize that Jesus came once and will come again but it still involves waiting and somehow Mary takes all of this faith and she not only waits with faith, she not only surrenders to this story in faith and she then waits in hope. She waits in hope for the thing that she's been promised, the thing that she's been told, she waits and she waits. It's an incredible story she holds on to this idea that for no word from God will ever fail. Think about what she's promised, at least the promise is implied, that she's told that this Jesus, this son of hers, will become this Messiah figure. He will be the savior of Israel and therefore eventually the savior of the world too. And the promises are huge. The promises are magnificent. This is Isaiah chapter 11. It's traditionally read in Advent. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's Den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be fulfilled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what Mary's waiting for. That's the, the full implication of the promise of who this child is. And she who says yes to the story in faith now has to wait to see it happen in hope. And that weight at times must have felt 
incredibly long because there's no implication to the story that Luke gives us that Mary was relieved of any of the difficulties of raising a child. Just the exhaustion of parenting is still present in her story. She still has to go through all of the emotions and eventually she'll watch her son die through incredible torture and wait with the hope of resurrection. Her story will undulate and flow, and yet it seems she still waits for this promise in hope. This is her song that she sings, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remember to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised her ancestors. The writer Joel B. Green says, the God that Mary sings to is, is this God. The God Mary praises is the covenant-making God, the God who acts out of his own self-giving nature to embrace men and women in relationship. God remembers and acts. But the gap between the remembering and the acting, it sometimes feels wide. And Mary, who's given this promise now, has to wait for the promise to come true. And she waits through crucifixion. John 19, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. She waits after resurrection at the upper room in Acts chapter one. We're told that with the disciples, Peter, John, and James, there is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She waits for this promise to come true and she waits with hope. Walter Brueggemann says there's something about, beautiful about the poetry that we read in Mary's song. Advent is the time of struggle between the poem, which opens the future of God, and the memo, which keeps control. The whole tenor of Advent is that God might act in us and through us, beyond us, more than we imagine, because newness is on the way. Newness is on the way. There's this sense of Advent that it is expectant. There's a newness that is coming. And so maybe you find yourself in this season in a situation somewhat akin to Mary. Maybe there's some sense of this is a promise. This is something I've believed. And you haven't seen it yet. You said yes to it in faith. And now you wait for it in hope. You wait for it in hope. It gets easy, I think, at different points of any story to question what we were told when it gets difficult. There's a phrase that Raymond Edmund made famous, never doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. And I wonder how many times for Mary in the midst of this story, there's questions. We sing at uh, Advent time or maybe Christmas time that famous song, Mary, Did You Know? And I've always really objected to the song. It's just one of my silly pet peeves. Every time I hear it, I'm like, no, of course she knew. It's in the story that she knew. But then I guess when I think about it fairly, I'm like, "Well, well, what exactly did she know? Because yes, she knew what she was promised. And yes, the baby was born, but there must have been times 
There must have been moments of struggling and questioning when hope was needed. How do you believe in those moments that in the waiting, God is working? How do you hold on to that idea? How do you hold on to hope when it's dark? How do you hold on to hope when it's Advent, when it's that season of darkness? There's something interesting I find about Christmas, and it comes up every year. Uh, Christmas is a force multiplier. What it seems to do is this. If you've had a wonderful year, Christmas comes along and it catches you by surprise because you're so busy in the wonder of everything that's happening. And maybe that's been your year. Maybe there's been a new child, a new grandchild, a new job, a new house, any of these wonderful things. And then Christmas comes along and Christmas always, for me, it's this moment where I, uh, someone will say to me about three months out, it's Christmas in three months. And I say something like, you're a liar. I don't believe you. There's no way it's only three months. And, and then it gets closer and closer and I panic at the last minute and it's a repeat cycle, and yet if it's been good, that, that's welcome, and it's healthy. But if Christmas, if, if the year's been bad, if the year's been full of grief, if the year's been full of sadness, if the year's been full of difficulty, well, then Christmas, it seems to make it worse. A, a friend of mine, when I first became a lead pastor, said, I, I just want to warn you, every Christmas, there'll be a phone call. Every Easter, there'll be a phone call. In those seasons where everything sort of, it, it builds and it builds and it builds, it just has that way of force multiplying. And there's been Christmases where on the day before Christmas Eve, someone's called me and said, I'm leaving the church, I can't handle it anymore. And then when I unpack the story with them, I'm like, really, for this, this doesn't seem like the deal that you kind of seem to be making it out to be. But there is something about this season that can do that to us, it becomes difficult, and in those moments, it becomes potentially hard to believe that God is doing anything, that he is the God that acts. And Advent is this season of waiting where we're invited to remember this intentionally, so we know it at Christmas. In the waiting, God is working. We enter this season. We enter this season of hope that Job describes as this. Indeed, there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down and is still sprouting and its shoots don't fail, if its roots age in the ground and its stump dies in the dust, at the scent of water it will bud and produce sprouts like a plant. I love to garden. It's one of the things that I just realized I was getting old. You know you're all getting older when you love watching birds, when you're suddenly like, ooh, that's a green warbler out in my garden. That's a big deal when you suddenly really care for the plants. Like there's something about age that seems to do that, at least to me. And, and so I'm in that season where everything that I've cared for is, seems like it's dead. And I'm waiting it for, for it to reemerge with life. I'm, I'm waiting hopefully for that thing to, to come back to life again. I think some of our dreams, some of our hopes can be like that at times. Psalm 42 verse 5 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The, the beautiful example Mary gives us is that she says yes unequivocally by faith to the story that God invites her into. And yet we watch her over decades of uncertainty as she waits with hope for that story to emerge. And what we get to say is this, in 2022, that story that she was promised, it is still not complete. It's still not complete. 
We, the church, still wait for its completion. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 says this, we were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. That's Advent. That's what we're invited to. Charlotte Bronte says, peril, loneliness, and uncertain future are not oppressive evils so long as the frame is healthy and the faculties are employed, so long especially as hope guides us by her star. What I love about this short quote from, from Bronte is this, the, the nativity scene, the one we picture, the quintessential one, it probably never happened. But the star we're told did happen. The star did point the way for these first magi to find Jesus. And that star over the, the nativity scene is, is known as the star of hope. Jesus' birth, his entry, his advent into the world is hope. John chapter 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's what we wait for. We trust in the waiting. God is working and that's Advent, and that's a beautiful thing. So I'd love to give you some practices. I'm going to invite Aaron to come back and lead us in a song to close us out, but here's some practices that you might want to think about over this Advent season, or certainly in this week. Perhaps as you recognize that Advent begins in the dark, you prepare for Christmas by noticing every time you turn a light on. I started doing this a little while ago. I would turn on lights and just recognize that something had changed, and I get to do it in a particular way when I turn on my Christmas lights for the first time this year and then watch them every day as they come on. There is something about the bringing of light that reflects on the fact that whatever the dream is that feels like it sits in the dark right now, there is hope and there's a waiting for light. Whatever the reflection is on this current moment, even if the situation you find yourself in ha has become so distraught and broken, what you would say you are waiting for is Jesus' return. Turning on a light is a reflection of hope. When we do that, we remember God's light has come into the world and will come again into the world. Maybe another one that you, you wanna try is, is to plant a bulb for spring. It's a, a hopeful practice. We, we plant this thing and we wait for it to emerge. And, and I think as Westerners, what, what we believe is life is generally easy with occasional moments of difficulty. And the experience of almost the whole entire world is that life is difficult with occasional moments of ease. So when you live in certain cultures, you realize that the only moment that's completely easy is the moment of harvest. You bring in the harvest and now you get to eat and you get to celebrate, but even sowing is fraught with danger and requires hope. You plant this thing and you wait for it to emerge. And maybe you'd like to plant something and wait for it to spring. And then a third one, which to me is just an essential part of Christmas. We get to practice gratitude. Something about me remembering the ways that God has been faithful helps me to know that he'll be faithful again. Maybe Mary did that at multiple times in that Jesus story. Maybe there's those moments where she gets to reflect back on the promise that the child would be born and knowing that the child was born allows her to get through different points of the journey. 
but something gets her through Jesus' death and through to his resurrection. And I just wonder whether gratitude isn't central to us at this season particularly. And then a prayer that you might like to pray. Break open our imaginations this Advent, oh God, so that we might see a world shaped by your faithfulness. Help us to give up the illusion of control and receive your newness. Help us to trust that in our waiting, you are working. That's what Mary does. She surrenders to a story that is bigger than her and she waits with hope for it to be fulfilled. That's what you and I are invited to do. We're invited to surrender all of the things we think we control to this Jesus story and we wait in hope to see it fulfilled. Let's pray. Jesus, this Advent, we begin our wait. We join with the first people that awaited your arrival. We recognize that you came and you will come again. And this world with all its brokenness, with a darkness that we don't understand, we wait for you to step into it. And God, we think of us as a community of just in the last six days, a couple of mass shootings that have become a scary normal for our world. We think of the brokenness that we see all around us, the hunger, the thirst, the deep needs that our world has. And we long for you to act. Help us to step into the stories that you offer us in faith and wait in hope to see you work. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.